Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I thought we would finish it today, but one more Sunday is going to be needed here to finish this chapter. We've been talking about the absolute proof of a surrendered life. And, and that, of course, that proof is the love that God produces in us. But today I want to change gears just a little bit and entitle the message, Love That Never Fails. We find that phrase in verse 8. You know, just a simple glance at verse 8 tells us that there are three things, three gifts or manifestations that the church of Corinth were struggling with. These were the gifts that were enamoring them. This, these were the gifts that somehow they were luring them to chase after. And it says it in verse 8. He says, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Now, there's no coincidence here that these three gifts are mentioned. You have to understand, this is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God working in Paul to write this letter. He doesn't just throw words out. He's not at a loss for words. The words prophecy, tongues, and knowledge describe the three gifts or manifestations that the Corinthians had literally attached themselves to. And as a result of it, this had led them into grave error in their day. And Paul, finishing out chapter 12, says, I've got a better way for you. I want to show you a better way. And what he wants to show them is instead of pursuing gifts, sensual, emotional experiences, pursue Christ. Attach yourself to Christ. Don't attach yourself to gifts. And when you attach yourself to Christ, He produces, and this is an awesome thought, folks, His love in us. Not a love, but His very love. The love that is used in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. That love is, is produced then in the life of the believer by the Holy Spirit of God. This love cannot be duplicated. It cannot be manipulated in any way, manufactured in any way by man. It has to be produced by the Holy Spirit of God and is only produced when we're surrendered to Him. And it's amazing the kingdom of love that God sets up in His church on this earth and how it ought to say something to the world as to what they do not have and gives us a witness to share Christ. A friend of mine emailed me this. He was looking for notable quotes out of history and he found this from Napoleon of all people, the great military man years, years centuries ago. And here's what it said. I know men, said Napoleon, in exile on the island of St. Helena to Count Montalban. He says, I know men. I tell you, 
that Jesus was not just a mere man. The religion of Christ is a mystery, Napoleon said, which subsists by its own force and proceeds from a mind which is not a human mind. We find in it a marked individuality which originated a train of words and actions unknown before. Jesus is not a philosopher, for his proofs are miracles, and from the first his disciples adored him. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires, but on what foundation did we rest the creation of our genius? And Napoleon said, upon force. Yet Jesus Christ founded an empire upon love, an empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. And then as, as he lamented, Napoleon said, I die before my time and my body will be given back to the earth to become food for worms. Such is the fate of him who has been called the great Napoleon. What an abyss, he says, between my deep misery and the eternal kingdom of Christ, which is proclaimed, loved, and adored, and is extending over the whole earth. And then he turned to his general, General Bertrand. The emperor added, if you do not perceive that Jesus Christ was God, I did wrong in appointing you a general. Now that's Napoleon. Absolutely overwhelmed at the kingdom of God on this earth, the kingdom of love. Founded not on force, but founded on love. And it's that love produced by God's spirit that gives us that kind of witness to a lost world. And the Apostle Paul is trying to tell the church of Corinth this. He said back in chapter 1, he said the testimony of God has been confirmed in you, but it never has been confirmed through you. In other words, you're in Corinth, but Corinth has gotten into you. Instead of you attaching yourself to Christ, letting his love literally attract many in Corinth, you've attached yourself to gifts and you've done nothing more than turn the whole gospel upside down. Now Paul, in the light of the culture of Corinth, says this. He begins to describe this love that God produces in our heart. First of all, in verse 4, he says that the love, this love is patient and kind. And that's important if you understand the culture of Corinth. Again, he's not throwing words around. There could have been other things he said. But in Corinth, they needed to hear this. Patient. The word patient is long-suffering. God's love is long-suffering. But that ought to give a glimmer of hope right there to the Corinthian believers. Even though they're upside down, even though they've completely missed it, God's love is persevering. It's long-suffering. Not only for us to others that God produces it in our life, but also from God to us. God's love is patient. But also God's love is kind. The word kind means useful. Instead of chasing after gifts that only edify you, he says God's love in you would, would cause you to pursue how you can edify others, not just yourself. Then he proceeds to show what life without this love would be like. And he uses eight negatives as he, as he follows down, beginning in the last part of verse 4. First of all, he says love is not jealous. Love's not going to try to steal away the joy that you're having. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. It doesn't say my gift is better than your gift. That's what was going on in Corinth. In verse 5, it does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not selfish. In other words, since it doesn't seek its own, it's not provoked. Well, I'll tell you, again, every time I've said it, third time, it convicts me. When I'm easily provoked by someone, it's obvious I'm seeking my own. I'm, I'm, I'm self-centered at that point. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't keep a ledger of things that people do wrong. 
against you so that you can use it later on. And then in verse 6 it says, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It does not take something that is, that is wrong and try to make it appear as if it's right. Matter of fact, if, if you took all these negatives and said, this is the world I live in, then life is nothing more than a cold, self-centered place that you, you exist day by day. But see, when God's love is there, it's quite different. He shows you that as he brings out five positives of what love is. And boy, I'll tell you what, this is when it be, it's almost like he, he, the current starts speeding up right here as he leads to his further thoughts. He says in verse 6, last part of it, love rejoices with truth. And I want you to know that's the truth. The definite article is used there. Certainly it enjoys with honesty, etc., but that's not what he's saying. It rejoices with the Word of God. Righteousness comes from the Word of God as we act on it by faith. That's why you can't rejoice in unrighteousness. Those two phrases are, are linked together there in verse 6. It rejoices with the truth. The Word of God does matter. Truth does matter. That's why Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthians because doctrinally they're totally upside down. And he loves them. So he's trying to correct them. If you love somebody, you want them to be doctrinally correct. Then in verse 7, it bears all things. The word for bears all things means it covers it. It doesn't seek to expose the wrongs of everybody. It builds a covering over it. That's love. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Now to put it succinctly, basically you could say love never gives up. And then he says it in another way in verse 8 as he starts off verse 8. He says God's love never, never fails. Now the word fails we looked at last time is the word peepto. There's two definitions. One, each one of them help us. I think the second one that I did not give to you last week that I'll give to you today is, is much more appropriate to the context. The first one means to fall, to stumble or fall. But it's used in secular Greek of a leaf that somehow the wind is blown very hard and it blows off the tree, it, it floats down, and then it withers and then it decays. God's love never decays, withers, or falls off. And it's, it's always there in the life of the believer. It's there. It never fails. But the better definition, and I think what he's saying here as I've studied the whole context here, is a definition used of a ship when it gets off course and as a result of it ends up in shipwreck. And I think that, if you'll stay with that definition of love never fails. Love never gets off course to where it can't get back on course. It's going to get you to the destination that it sets you out on. It's going to arrive. Love never fails. Now, I'll tell you what. This ought to begin to already encourage your heart. He's saying this to the Corinthian believers. Even though you're upside down, even though you're, you're immature babies, even though you don't have a clue about half what I'm telling you, God's love is going to get you to where he told you you were going to arrive. Because God's love never fails. Now, you want to enjoy the journey? Then you attach yourself to the one who produces that love. You want to be miserable on the way? Then don't attach yourself. But you will arrive. God's love never fails. Now, with that thought in mind, let's ease in and, and see what God has for us. Man, these are some powerful verses. First of all, because God's love does not fail, there will come a time when there'll be no more need of preaching. <laughs> Do I hear an amen? I better not. <laughs> there'll come a time when there'll be no more need of preaching. But if there are gifts of prophecy, he says, they will be done away. Now the first thing you've got to do is to realize, if you have a good translation, gifts of, if there be gifts of, is in italics. That means a translator has added those words to the original text. They're not in the original text. 
That's just a translator's way of bringing it out to perhaps make it more sense. It, it seems to be implicit, but it's not there in the original text. The literal would be, but if prophecies, they will be done away. Now the word for prophecy is the word prophetimi. Thank you, Wayne. I really appreciate it. We have seen in our study, prophetimi means to speak before someone. That can mean two things. It can mean to foretell the future, to tell beforehand, or it can mean to tell forth the Word of God. Now, we've already seen in our study that the, telling, the, 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 the foretelling the future is already beginning to phase out, even as Paul wrote this. You only find that as a pattern with the apostles, prophets, and the evangelists of that day. Not the evangelists we have today. Don't, don't, get, mis- don't get upset. The evangelists they had, the 70 that were sent out, they had these gifts. You find a pattern there. So if you, if you bring it on up to date to where Paul would be, when you think of prophecy, you've sort of got to put that out of your, your mind and come to the telling forth, the preaching of the Word of God. You see, Paul is saying there's going to come a day when sermons will no longer be needed. Sermons will no longer be needed. Now be quiet, don't say anything <laughs> Sermons will no longer be needed. Now, why? You see, all preaching, in fact, if you want to go behind preaching and go to the foretelling and the the prophecies of the prophets of the Old Testament, are at best incomplete. Even the author of Hebrews says that the prophets of the Old Testament prophesied in part and in portion. They didn't have the whole picture. Neither is any message complete in itself. There's always something left out. There's always things that could have been said. There's there's only a piece or a portion. Now, they only had a piece of the huge pie. So there's going to come a day that there's no need for that anymore. In verse 10, he tells us when that day is. He says that when the perfect comes. When the perfect comes. Now, we'll get to that. Something in the future is going to happen. When the perfect comes, and we'll explain to you what we believe that to be, There will be no more need for prophecies. There will be no more need for sermons or preaching because it will all be absorbed in that which is perfect that is coming. Now the phrase will be done away with is the word katergeo, will be done away. It's the words kata down and then from the word argos which means to idle, to idle down. Actually here it means to set aside, to set aside, to make it idle to where it no longer is needed. Look at verse 11. He uses the same phrase. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. And he uses the same word. In other words, he didn't really do away with them. If he did away with them, then what man could not do another childish thing? I mean, my wife blames me on that all the time. (laughs) You're doing a childish thing. But he set them aside as a pattern in his life. He set them aside. They're no longer needed. Now, the verb that is used here, oh, pay attention, is future passive. You say, Wayne, why do you get into stuff like this? I'm not, I don't care what the verb is. You better care because it sheds light on what he's talking about. Future passive. In the future, the perfect is coming. In the future, passive voice, God, not man, God will take all the sermons, all the prophecies, and set them aside. When the perfect comes, all preaching and prophecies will be set aside. And remember, that word prophecies is in the plural, not prophecy, singular, prophecies. So he's talking about all the different messages from all the time, and particularly the preaching of today. All of that will be absorbed and set aside when the perfect comes. So there's going to, because God's love does not fail, it gets us to the destination God says to where we're, we're headed. There's going to come a day when the perfect comes, 
that all preaching will be set aside. Secondly, because God's love does not fail, there's going to come a time when there's no more ignorance. No more ignorance. Now I'm going to skip the little phrase he has about tongues ceasing. I'll come back to it. He says in verse 8, But if there be gifts, if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. And the reason I'm, I'm doing knowledge second instead of third is because the verb that is used with prophecies and the verb that is used with knowledge are exactly the same. It changes with the, with the tongues. That's what I, want, what I want you to see. So Paul says that there's going to come a day that the knowledge will be set aside. Now what do you mean, Wayne? Is there going to come a day I can't learn anymore? Is there going to come a day that I won't know anything or there'll be no knowledge? No, that's not what he's saying. In fact, knowledge has got to be looked at in the same sense that prophecies were looked at. Even though it's in the singular, it has more of the plural understanding. Actually, actually scholars have debated this should be the plural because that exegetically and grammatically fits the text. Singular, as it is in some texts, is not right. Plural should be there, but if you're going to leave it singular, you've got to look at it in the, in the plural sense. What do I mean by that? Not all knowledge that we have. You see, any knowledge that I have or you have is just a part of a bigger piece. In other words, it's just, it, it, it's fragmented at best. Mankind thinks that they're so smart, but all we have are little bits of knowledge. We see through a glass dimly, as he says later on. We don't have it all together right now. This is why it's, it's so important never to attach yourself to a preacher. No preacher has it all together. Attach yourself to the giver. He's the one who has it all together. And he is the treasure house of wisdom and knowledge, as Colossians tells us. So all these bits and pieces of knowledge that we have, fragmented as it is, will one day be absorbed into that which is perfect when it comes. It'll be set aside. It won't be needed because it'll be, you'll be overwhelmed at what you'll know. Look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. I want, to see, I want you to see something. When that which is perfect comes, when we see Christ one day, there's going to be something that's going to take place in our life. It's called the glorification of the body. I want you to see this. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. The Apostle John is telling us what it's going to be like when we see Jesus face to face, the one who is the summation of all knowledge. What we have is only fragmented. We have bits and pieces. 1 John 3 and verse 2. John says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be, and what does it say? Like Him. Oh, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him just as He is. All those tidbits of knowledge that we thought we had, and aren't we proud of it, will one day just be set aside when we see Him we shall know as we're known. Now look back in chapter 13 of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and verse 12. I want to show you something. All this is tied together. You've got to tie these knots. If you don't, you get real frustrated with what these verses are meaning. Verse 12 of chapter 13, look at it. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then how? What does he say? What? Face to face. Now look at this. Now, as I look in a mirror, I know in part. But then, when is then? When I see him face to face, I shall know fully, just as I have also been fully known. Can you imagine what it's going to be like one day to know as we've been known? And all those bits of knowledge that we thought we had, all of a sudden they mesh together and we know, we know. When, when that which is perfect is come, all preaching, all fragmentary bits of knowledge will be set aside 
Because then, you see, we will know as we're known. Down here we think, like I said, we're so smart. We really do. My brother-in-law is an engineer. And you know, there's something about engineers. He talks in language that I have to have a dictionary to understand. I mean, he's got to explain how everything works and all. And I don't know what in the world he's talking about. But he was saying, you know, Wayne, we think we're so smart. And I'm thinking, you're saying that to me? We think we're so smart. And if he thinks he's so smart and is dumb, think where I am on the scale. He said, we think we're so smart. And I said, what are you talking about, George? He said, you know, I was studying a manual the other day, and it's probably an old situation. I don't know when it occurred. And he said a jet engine company wanted to make an engine to where when a duck or some large fowl would hit it, that it wouldn't shear the blades, therefore crashing the plane, and it would just absorb all the way through. All their technology and all their education and academia, they put together a test. They finally came up with an engine that a duck could hit it <laughs> and it wouldn't shear off the blades inside that engine. Well, they came time for the day. Boeing and all of them were there. They wanted to see this great test of this engine. And all the minds, all the intelligence were there. Well, they had prepared a cannon and that cannon was going to shoot the duck through the engine at the calibrated speed of how when a plane is landing, the duck would go through it. They already had it all that figured out. So this PhD engineer walks over and loads the cannon, fires it, and blows the engine into a million pieces. And they can't understand what had happened. We've done our work, the computers, everything. We were so intelligent until they discovered that the PhD put a frozen duck in the cannon and shot it through the engine. <laughs> we are so smart down here. Man, we clean up the air in a city and pollute a river. I mean, we don't know what we're doing. Everybody, whoa, aren't we intelligent? And I'll tell you, he's not speaking in the secular intelligence. He's, of course, talking in spiritual ways. We think we know so much about God, but when that which is perfect has come, He's going to take all the preaching and set it aside. He's going to take all the knowledge and set it aside because you're going to know as you're known. And on that day, you'll realize how much there really was to the picture. Well, because God's love never fails, that day is coming. God is going to get us to where he says he's going to get us. God's love never lets the ship get off course too far that he doesn't get it back on course and make it come to its arrived, its arrived destination. Well, and thirdly, because God's love does not fail, one day there'll be no more need for different languages. Now, let's go back to that tongues verse. In verse 8, right in the middle of it, he says, if there are tongues, they will cease. Now, I hope you understand by now, as we've studied chapter 12, tongues, when it's rendered in the plural, refers to known, understandable languages. Get off this kick that that's some ecstatic prayer language that somebody has, that is not right. He deals with what they're doing in chapter 14. He puts the a tongue, singular, every time he refers to them, a tongue. Every time he refers to himself, plural, languages, known, understandable language. There's going to come a time that there'll be no more language barriers. All the languages are going to cease. Why? Because we're going to speak one language. In that day, when the perfect is come, and all sermons are put aside, and all knowledge is set aside, all languages will cease because there's not going to be a need for them. They can all hear and speak in the same language. You realize the only reason we speak in different languages is because what happened in Genesis chapter 11 
when man was so arrogant and God looked down at him, he said, hey, this is not going to work. And he confused them with different languages, and that's where your nations have their root, right there in the pagan area of Babel. And do you also realize, that's Genesis 11, 6 and 7, but do you also realize that at Pentecost there was a reversal of Babel? They spoke in different languages, but they all heard in their own language, and God was giving them a prophecy. Only for that moment did that happen, but he's saying, listen, there's coming a day when you're not going to need languages because you're only going to speak one language and you'll all hear in one language. When that which is perfect has come, there'll be no more need for languages. There'll be no more barrier there for languages. They will cease. You know, somebody said that, Brother Spiro said it's going to be Greek. I'm in deep trouble. Some of you hadn't got a chance. No, <laughs> I don't know what the language is going to be, but it's going to be one language. Now, the Greek verb used there for they will cease is important. It's the word pafsante, and that's a different verb now. You can already hear it. You can hear it. Then that little word we looked at, katargeo, a different verb but altogether. All, all and it means to stop. Stop. Put the brakes on. Stop. Now, it's in the future, just like the others are. Aha. But it changes. It's in the future middle. Now, there's a big difference. Future passive, God's going to do it. He'll take this stuff and set it aside. He'll take the knowledge and set it aside. And it'll be absorbed in, in that perfect when it comes. But this one means it'll cease on its own. It'll cease on its own. He's not talking about his static tongue. You say, Wayne, you, you act awfully sure of yourself. How did you arrive at that conclusion? Well, I better defend myself, and obviously I'm convinced. <laughs> First of all, if he's talking about an ecstatic tongue, like I said, he would have put it in the singular because he follows a pattern all the way through. He doesn't break that pattern. Anytime he speaks of what God does, which are the languages, plural. And this is in the plural, so I know he's talking about languages. Secondly, some people say in, in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, that when I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, angels means a heavenly language that I have in my prayer time, and you can't take that away from me. Well, now, wait a minute. If that's going to cease, which he says it will, that doesn't make any sense. If it's a heavenly language and we, that which is perfect is come and we're in heaven, what are we going to do, sign to each other? I mean, there, it's, the language is not going to disappear. You walk down through the process of just simple logic, and you have to arrive at the fact he's talking about languages, not some mystical whatever everybody wants to call it. He's talking about languages. There'll be no language barrier when that which is perfect has come. There's coming a day when all prophecies will be set aside. There won't be any need for preaching. There won't be any need for all this bits and fragments of knowledge. Not as if you do away with it, but it's all absorbed into that which is perfect. And there's coming a day when there won't be any need for languages. We'll all speak the same language. Why do, how do we know that? Because love does not fail. Love does not fail. God has told us where we're headed. God has told us it's the hope of every believer. And when we see him, we shall be like him, and the perfect has come. Now, we haven't just told you what the perfect is yet, but we'll get there in a minute. When the perfect comes, we know that we're going to arrive because love never fails. And I'll tell you what. I've always read this as if it's up to me to love my brother, but I'm beginning to realize it's not up to me, it's up to him. And the whole promise does not start with me loving my brother, but me receiving the love that my God has for me. And if I'll just receive it, then I can enjoy the journey because I'm going to get there. But if I won't receive it, I'm gonna, it's going to be one painful direction for me. And the Corinthians had already bought in to that painful direction. Well, fourthly, because God's love never fails, one day we will be glorified. 
we will be made perfect. As John said, we shall be like him. We will not be God. We will not be omniscient. We will not be omnipresent or omnipotent, but we will be perfect in his, his eyes, in his sense. We will be glorified. It will be something that we have never really known. We won't be God, but we'll be like him. Verse 9 is so connected with verse 8 and verse 10. It's amazing, isn't it? In every chapter, verse 9 just sort of comes between verse 8 and verse 10. After he says what he says, look here, <laughs> verse 9. For we know in part, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Now the term in part <laughs> needs to be understood. I'm already laughing because I know where I'm headed. I think I'm going to do it again this message. <laughs> it needs to be understood. It's the word ek out of and merus. It means to be a part or a piece of, of a bigger something, <laughs> whole or whatever. Like for instance, if I, if I would take the top of this piano and rip it off, wouldn't that be fun? And I would hold it up. That's a part of the piano. You, you really wouldn't know what the piano looked like just by the top. But one day when the piano got here and I put it where it belongs, it's sort of absorbed into the hole. You, you don't see it anymore. You, you see the hole. That's what he's talking about. It's a part. We prophesy in part. Even the author of Hebrews said that. I mean, we, everything we do is in part. It's fragmented. Our knowledge is fragmented and yet it's directed and it's increasing. But one day when we see the embodiment of, of, of knowledge, It'll all be absorbed into that. Now, I want to describe to you that <laughs> having a part and not seeing the whole, you know, it's kind of like we have five senses. The eyes are for one thing, touch, smell, all these. You've got to have them all to get the whole picture. You can't get the whole picture with just one. And I was, when I was studying this, I thought about it. had so much fun telling it at the first service. I'm going to tell it this service. You know, the deer hunters. How many of you out there are deer hunters? Let's just raise your hand. I'm always getting shot at up here. Okay, good. We got them out there. You know that when we go into the woods, <laughs> we mask the human scent with certain things that we do. <laughs> we have these little bottles that we buy for about, oh, they're, they're expensive, about five bucks. And you spray it on your boots especially to make sure there's no human scent when you go into the woods. Now, what is it that masks that scent? Well, it's <laughs> excretions from animals. I'll leave it that way. I won't tell you what. <clears throat> I was in Mississippi. Let me just give you a illustration. I was in Mississippi, <laughs> and I had run out of all this the scent to cover and mask your, your odor. So I went and bought some. I think the excretions I was using was from a fox, but I won't go any further than that, all right? Let me just say this. If you... <laughs> If you have any worry about whether you can smell or not, try a bottle of this. You'll know immediately whether or not your nose is working. It's awful. It is awful. My hunting clothes are out in the garage, and my wife swears she'll kill me if I bring them inside because it gets on, it stays on. I just want you to know that. So I get this bottle, and I take it back to my room. I'm staying in Motown, preaching at night, deer hunting during the day. Perfect to me, balance in life. So I go to the room, and I have my knife out, and it's right before church. And so I have to hurry, but I want to put it into a, I want to get it out and get it ready for the next morning. I had a few minutes before I left. And I began to open the package and the sharp blade pricked the little plastic bottle filled with this obnoxious, smelly stuff. One drop will run you out of a room. One drop. And all of a sudden, I'm trying to catch it. I didn't want to get it on the floor. I mean, it was in my hand. I'm thinking, oh, no. I'm looking around. Where can I put this in? And I got over to my little medicine kit there and inside of it, a little, uh, 
whatever. And I got out this little bottle that's lens cleansing fluid. And lens crafters, I think it was a lens crafters bottle. And holding it this way, I had to really work to get that top off, and I poured out all the stuff, and I got it. I caught it. I caught every bit of it and put it in the lens crafters, lens cleaner bottle. Put the top on and washed my hands. My room did get some stuff on it. The maids that week would run in and run out of my room. <laughs> They'd throw towels from about 10 feet up. We're not going in there. And it was cold, so it was hot, and that, that heat made it smell that much worse. So I forgot about it. I, you know, I had the thought. You better change bottles on this thing or you're going to have a, this is going to embarrass you someday. <laughs> One year goes by. Forgot all about that lens, lens cleanser. I went back to this same church. We're doing the very same thing. And I was preaching one night and my, I looked at my glasses and I said, good night. They're off. I sure wished I had some cleanser to put on my glasses. And I, I said, look here. I've got it. I picked it up and went, on the front and on the back, wiped it off, put those glasses on, and I'm thinking, whoa! <laughs> what, what is this? What's going on here? Well, I, <laughs> I got to the church and preached the whole message. It's about to die. I'm thinking, where is that stuff coming from? Is it my feet? I, mean, I, I put the odor on. I know I've showered. Second night, <laughs> I preach again. <laughs> Third night. I'm in the middle of the message the third night and right in the middle of me trying to, about to die, it hits me what I've done. And I lost the whole message. I mean, that shouldn't even have come that night. I mean, from then on, it was history. I could not stop laughing. It's helpful to have the whole picture, not just part of it. And my nose played a great role in showing me the whole picture of that thing. You see, that's what he's saying. He's saying prophecy and knowledge, they're just a part. of. We, we prophesy in part, we know in part. In verse 10, he says, however, but when that which is perfect is come. Now look at this. He contrasts part with that which is perfect. You've got to see that. There's contrast there in verse 10. He's leading you right to his thought. In verse 12, we have the same thought. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For now I know in part. But then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Something is coming in the future. When the perfect comes, that'll swallow up the parts, they'll be set aside, and they'll be no longer necessary, and there won't even be a language barrier. We'll all be hearing and speaking the same thing. When the perfect comes. Now here's where we enter into some of the controversial waters. What does he mean by the perfect? Well, the word is to teleon. Now, I say I did it that way because to is a definite article. When a definite article is used with that little word, it means that which is the perfect state of something. Now, it's not just an area of your life. This is not just maturity. This is absolute maturity. This is the absolute perfect state of maturity. And then verse 12 links us to what that has to mean. Now, you say it's Christ's coming. Well, it, it could be, but I'm thinking it's more this. When we, he says, but then we're going to see him face to face. And what's going to happen? John says, we will be like him. And to me, it's the full maturity of the believer, which God has already programmed into the computer. And Romans 8 says he already sees that glorification. It's already done. And his love never fails to get you from here all the way to there. We're going to make it. 
We are going to make it. Corinthians, are you listening? You want to be painful in the journey or do you want to enjoy it? You want to attach yourself to a gift? You're missing out because you don't know the love. Not only are you not experiencing it for yourself, you're not experiencing it and giving it to others. And you're miserable. You're going to make it though because his love will get you there. But you can't enjoy it a whole lot more. I don't see how this term, when that which is perfect has come, could mean anything else but the glorification of the believer. When one day <laughs> we won't need to worry about sermons or knowledge. We'll know as we're known. And when we speak, we'll speak in the language all can understand. It'll all be the same language. There is perfection for the believer that is coming one day when we see Christ. Now there's some other views of this. Some people say it's the Word of God when the Word of God comes. Now, wait a minute. When the Word of God comes, you mean all preaching is going to stop? <laughs> all knowledge is going to stop? And we're all going to speak in the same language? That just doesn't make much sense to me. Then people say, well, it's Christ when He comes because He's the perfect one. Well, that, that to me is close because when He comes and we see Him, we'll be made like Him. Some say that this is the maturing process of the Corinthians. When they finally get to maturity, they put aside all this garbage they've been doing and get about the things that God wants them to do. They can grow up and be adults in the family of God. Now, personally, I agree with that thought, but not in this verse. It comes up in just a minute. To me, he's, he gives the ultimate maturity first. And then as an illustration, he goes back to their immediate need for maturing in the faith. Once again, I think that's what he's pointing to. Now, some people would ask, does this happen at the moment you die? When you see Jesus, you're going to be like him. Well, in one sense it does because we do have a temporary covering for our spirit. The spirit is never left unclothed. 2 Corinthians 5 teaches us that. But we don't have that full that body yet that's going to be our eternal covering. So I don't know, I don't know how this works. I can't, I can't go any further than I can go. I do know that in 1 Corinthians 15, he gets into this big time and heavy and he's just in chapter 13. We're talking about just a few verses over, so it's got to be on his mind. But this is the glorification, I believe, of the believer that he is one day going to come and God's love will not fail in getting us to that place. But verse 10 says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And be done away is the very term, katergeo, be set aside on that day when the perfect is to come. And then as if to explain, then as if to explain, he shows how you can look at life from start all the way to finish. And it's a process of growing up constantly, growing up, coming out of childish things into mature things. And even as mature physical adults, we've got to come out of our childish spiritual behavior and grow up. It's a constant replacing one, replacing another. One being absorbed into another as the fuller comes on, in the maturing process. Look what he says in verse 11. When I was a child... I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Now, I don't think he's just using physical maturation there. I think what he's talking about is the spiritual maturing. That's what he's talking about. The church of Corinth needed to grow up. Chapter 3, 1, 2, and 3, it says you're babies. You still got a pacifier in your mouth. You're chasing after all these silly experiences. You're trying to get an emotion. When Christianity is not an emotion, it's a person. And it's being attached to him. Their knowledge was infant. Their reasonings were infant. Their speaking was inexcusable. And he says, now grow up, grow up. But he uses himself like a loving father. He says, I was once a child. And when I was a child, I used to speak as a child, reason as a child. 
He's telling the Corinthian church that, they, yes, you're babies, but I was once a baby. And God's love is going to get you there. But now in the meantime, there's a constant maturing that needs to be taking place. You need to be coming to the, to the place of putting away those childish things and coming into the adulthood spiritually that God has for you. Paul says, when I became a man, I did away with childish things. And that's that word, I set them aside. I'm still capable of doing it from here to there, but I set it aside. They were absorbed into something bigger because back then that's all I knew. But now it's been absorbed in much, much more that I know and the maturing has taken place. But there's a final maturing that's going to be awesome, far beyond anything we'll experience until Jesus comes. Life is a constant maturing. The perfect, but when the perfect comes, we will be like Him. And love never fails. Once it's received, it takes us all the way through the journey. It's going to take us anyway. But we get to, see, that's what Ephesians is talking about when he says, once I have surrendered to him, then I find out, I comprehend for myself what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of God's love. Then I can know and experience for myself the love of Christ. Only it's surrender. Folks, we need to get into this. We need to realize that it is love that motivates us. It roots us. We're grounded in it. It nourishes us. And that love, when received, is what's going to give us the joy in the journey. But we are going to get there because that love never fails. Now, that's the way you look at it. So it comes right back to where, where what are we going to do with it? We're going to bow before Him and attach ourselves to Him? Let His love change us and change others around us? Let His love assure us of the hope that is coming? Or are we going to do it our own way and be miserable the whole journey? That's why it's much better to attach ourselves to the giver than live as a child enthralled with the gifts. And I don't have much time left, but just enough time to tell you an illustration. Get to talk about my granddaughter one more time. <laughs> Take every opportunity I possibly can. Diana's down in Florida right now, and she takes any opportunity to go down there. It's raining, I need to go to Florida, okay. But whatever, she's down there. But right now they have bought their first house. Eric and Stephanie have bought their first house. And it's been so precious because she's down there helping them do everything. I mean, Diana's, they're sewing stuff because they don't have a lot of money to put into it. So she's fixed, fixing things up and putting pictures on the wall. And Diana said it'll take her another two weeks. I won't see her until the last part of this month. I'm doing a meeting in Winter Garden, Florida, which is 20 minutes from there. So I get to see everybody when I go down. She's staying until I come down. Well, <laughs> she called me Tuesday or Wednesday. So sweet. Eric and, and, and Stephanie have been raising German shepherds, purebred German shepherds. They have a German shepherd that is long hair, 155 pounds, purebred, that if you mess with it, it'll eat you alive. When it stands up on its hind legs, he puts his paws right here and looks at me eyeball to eyeball. That's a big dog. I'm glad he likes me. But they've had to put him in another place. They've been renting a house, and their lease is about to run up, and their house, now that they have, perfect timing, they had, they had to keep him in another place because they couldn't keep the dog where they live. But they get the dog now because they can have a dog where they live. And so they got him a dog house. And that little Holland loves that dog. I mean, loves that dog. And that dog is so good with her, it won't run up to her. It gets down and crawls up to her so she can pet it because it doesn't want to frighten her. And I mean, she just thinks that dog was dropped out of heaven just for her. And that dog will lick her in the face, and she just laughs like that's the best thing. Well, she's missed that dog terribly. She has missed that dog terribly. Well, Wednesday, they told her Tuesday that if it's a pretty day Wednesday, we'll get to go get the dog. Well, Holland is so pumped. They're going to go get, and his name is Flip. I told him, I said, for a purebred dog, I, don't, I, I, thought, I told him if he ever gets a female, he ought to name it Flop. <laughs> 
flip and flop. But they're going to go get flip. And she said, flip. She can't say flip. She said, flip. We're going to get flip. And so she went to bed excited. If it's going to be a pretty day, she gets to go get the dog. Well, 2 o'clock in the morning, she wakes up, goes into their room, wakes everybody up and says, is it pretty out? Can we go get the dog? It's pitch black outside. And I said, go back to bed all night long, on the hour. Can we go? Can we go? Can we go? Well, they went and got the dog. Well, they brought the dog in. The dog was so excited to see everybody. It was running all over the backyard. Big old thing. Finally, he came in. It was hot. And he needed some water. So they got him a bowl of water and set it down on the back. He comes over and lapping that water up. Holla. I call her a little bit. She goes, gets a glass of water and brings it out and sets it beside the water deal that, that Flip's drinking out of. Gets down on her hands and knees and licks out of the water glass. And what, when Diana told me that, my heart just melted. I'm just going to see that little precious thing down there licking the water because she loves that dog. She wants to be like that dog. But you know what? The parents didn't kick her out of the family because she acted like a child. The love they have for that child is going to bring her through her childhood. And because of that love, is going to assure her she matures because these are parents that love that child. That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. Go on and act like babies, but I want you to know something. God loves you even as babies. And his love in you is going to get you here. You're going to be glorified one day. You will be like him. Now, please enjoy the journey. Will you just submit to the one who is that love? Instead of chasing after fleshly garbage, just submit to the giver. It's a whole lot more pleasant journey. You know, I don't know if you're as hard-headed as I am. I hope not. But about the only thing in getting older is good for me is I'm finally learning to quit beating my head against the very... You know, Paul says you're kicking against the very things that God's trying to use in your life. Just submit, and his love will see you through and will assure you that you, you'll, you'll come out of those childish things. You will mature, and one day you're going to arrive at your destination because love never fails. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.